you have a Bible, you can take it out and open this morning to two passages. I'm going to look at two different texts, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want to say a few things of an introductory nature before we get to those two particular texts, but we will read both of them in just a moment. Last week was week one in an 11-week series to start the year thinking about the Holy Spirit. And the question that we focused on week one was who is the Holy Spirit? Uh, This morning and in the weeks ahead, we're going to think about the Holy Spirit's work. But before we think about Him in utilitarian terms, we just wanted to be grounded in the biblical truth about who He is. And so we talked last week about the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force or He's not an it, but He's a person. The Bible reveals Him as a person. He is the third person person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and with the Son. He is the one who proceeds from the Father. We talked about that idea last week, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. He eternally proceeds. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have a birthday. But just as the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. And we talked about last week the, the fundamental biblical truth that the Holy Spirit is truly God, not just a part of God or not just close to God in stature or being or power, but He is truly God. Now, in the weeks ahead, we're going to talk about what the Holy Spirit does in our lives in the world today. But this morning, we're going to look at His work in the past, and we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit has inspired the scriptures and why we need to understand that and how we ought to respond to that truth. So I want to start this morning with one of my favorite, in fact, maybe my number one favorite Baptist theologian, John Dagg. And John Dagg's face represents how I feel about the weather this morning. I always think it's good to put Dagg's face up there. Uh, By all accounts, he really was a pleasant man, but if you search him up, this is the picture that has been passed down to us. So John Dagg, Manual of Theology, Uh, He says this, thinking about the Holy Spirit in the Bible. He says, The men who originally wrote the Holy Scriptures performed the work under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Such was the extent of this influence that the writing, when it came forth from their hands, was said to be given by inspiration of God. Now, even over a hundred years ago when Dag wrote this, there were all sorts of different theories about inspiration. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures? There's all sorts of different views then, just as there are today. And so Dag goes on in his Manual of Theology, and he explains, when we talk about the Holy Spirit inspiring the Scriptures, we're talking about something called verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. I'm not going to try to give you all the other views that we're not talking about. I'm just giving you the view that we are talking about. Verbal, meaning The actual words of Scripture are inspired, not just the ideas. It's not like God just gave the biblical authors writing prompts and turned them loose to say what they wanted to say. But the actual words of Scripture are inspired. Plenary, if you've been to a conference and you went to a plenary session, that's where everyone was all in there together. So when we say verbal plenary inspiration, we're saying all the words. Not just the ideas, but the words. And not just some of the words, but all of the words. All of the words of the Bible are inspired 
by the Holy Spirit. Now, we have trouble with this word inspired as English speakers because we use the word inspired or inspiring in a number of different ways that doesn't apply to what we're talking about this morning with the Bible. For example, sometimes we talk about something special as inspired. So maybe you go to a concert and you say, that was an inspired performance. You're saying it was really, really special. There was something to that, something almost intangible. But when we say the Bible is inspired, we're not just saying it's special. It is special, but we're saying more than just it's a special book. Sometimes we use the phrase inspiring to talk about something that motivates us. I woke up this morning, I pulled up the weather app, I was immediately inspired to put on long socks and a coat. Right? It motivated me to do a thing. And look, the Bible motivates the people of God to do lots of things, but that's not what we're talking about when we say that the Bible is inspired. There's a New Testament Greek professor named Robert Plummer. He teaches at Southern Seminary. He says this about inspiration. Here's the definition. While the authors of the Bible wrote as thinking, feeling human beings... God so mysteriously superintended the process that every word written was also the exact word he wanted to be written, free from error. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the inspiration, the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. All of the words were inspired by God in this way, that human beings sat down to wrote. They wrote with their own personalities, vocabularies, experiences, knowledge base, circumstances, all of that. But that the Holy Spirit, this is Plummer's word, mysteriously superintended over the process in such a way that the end result was not just David's words, Moses' words, Isaiah's words, Matthew's words, John's words. Paul's words, but is actually God's words. Now, Plummer doesn't use this word, but I'm going to use it for subbing in where he says mysteriously superintended. What we're talking about is a miracle. It's a miracle, admittedly. The Bible's filled with miracles. Christians historically believe in miracles and supernatural things that take place according to the power of God. And this is one of those miracles that Christians believe in, the inspiration of of the scriptures. Can I tell you just some basic numbers about this miracle? This miracle didn't just happen in one single moment, but it happened over the course of 1,500 years. It's not like the Holy Spirit dropped down once to inspire someone to write Genesis through Revelation. But over 1,500 years, this miracle took place through 40 authors, at least. In three different languages, and it's one single story. From beginning to end, it is one single story that centers on and focuses on the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. So Matthew Emerson says this wonderful little book, The Story of Scripture. He says, the whole Bible is one book inspired by one author with one story that culminates in one person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the inspiration of the Bible. Now, shortly, we're going to come to these two texts, and we're going to 
move from me sharing quotes with you to digging into the text of the Bible itself and listening to the very Word of God. First, I just want to connect a few conceptual dots. These are things I wish we had more time to talk about, but this is not a, a sermon series on the Bible. It's a sermon series on the Holy Spirit. I just don't want to pass these truths by. Once you understand what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit inspiring the Scriptures... There are a number of other things that fall into place. They can be supported biblically, but they can also be uh, arrived at logically in thinking about this doctrine of inspiration. One is the inerrancy of Scripture. That is, there are no mistakes in the Bible. All the words are inspired. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is God, who does not lie and cannot lie. There are no mistakes. There are no errors in the Bible. Secondly, the authority of Scripture. There's some people today who say, I don't like what Paul says about a certain thing. I don't like what Paul says about a certain thing. But the doctrine of inspiration reminds us that it's not just Paul saying that thing, it's the Holy Spirit of God saying that thing. So when you say, I don't like what Moses or David or Isaiah or Paul or John or Peter or whoever says about a certain thing in the Bible, what you're really saying is, I don't like God's opinion on this subject. The Scripture has authority. We're in no place to argue with it. Number three, the sufficiency of Scripture. We'll come back to this idea here in just a moment. But the Scriptures are all that we need for life and for godliness. Number four, uh, the power of Scripture. This is the very Word of God. The same Word of God that in the beginning created galaxies and universes simply by speaking. It's the very same God who spoke creation into existence, who spoke these words in the Scriptures. It's a, a living book, a powerful book, an active book. Lastly, the unity of the Scriptures. And Emerson reminds us of this truth. It's one book, one author, one story with one hero, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you look at those five little truths, there's something inside of me that wants to preach a sermon on each one of them individually. And in fact, we did that just a few years ago on Wednesday nights. We spent a, a Wednesday night series talking about what the Bible is, how do we understand what the Bible is, and then how do we read it and interpret it and make sense of it. And those messages are still online. You can go back and access those. These are some of the truths that we talked about. Now, let's come to the text itself. And I want us to begin by reading 2 Timothy 3. 14 to 17, and then we're going to flip over, and we're going to read a few verses from 2 Peter chapter 1, and so hopefully you have both of these passages marked in your Bible. We'll start with 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. The Bible says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. That's the word of God in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the word of God in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. 
Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, quote, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, end quote. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we simply ask that you would send your spirit to our hearts to open our eyes to the truth of this book that throughout the ages uh, that same spirit inspired. Give us eyes to see. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just going to ask a couple of questions this morning. The first question is, what are these two passages, 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 1, what do they teach us about the Holy Spirit and His work in inspiring the Scriptures? And the first truth is this, all Scripture is, we're going to use this word, inspired by the Holy Spirit. I know that's not the word used in the ESV, the version of the Bible I just read in 2 Timothy. That's the word we're going to use, the doctrinal term. All Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. So how do I get, how do we get from the idea that Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God? God, that's what the text says, how do we get from there to understanding that all Scripture is inspired and literally breathed out by the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm going to just share with you some, uh, some biblical languages, some basic terms from the Bible that I think you ought to understand. There's a couple of words, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, that go together. The Old Testament Hebrew term is ruach, ruach. And if you really want to sound Hebrew, you kind of cough at the end of that. I'm not going to do it with a microphone on, but you can practice at home. Ruach. The Greek word in the New Testament is pneuma. And you say the P. Pneuma. Now, interestingly, if you hold your hand up to your mouth and you say both of those terms, you can feel it. You can feel something coming out of your mouth when you say the Hebrew term ruach or the Greek word pneuma. And the definition of these words is kind of tricky. It depends on the context. Sometimes these words refer to capital S spirit, as in God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. Sometimes these words refer to lowercase s, as in your spirit, your soul or your spirit. Sometimes these two words refer to the wind, which we understand in West Texas. It's the basic word that the Hebrews or the Greeks would, would use to say, it's windy in West Texas. And these are the basic words that would be used to describe your breath, what you saw when you walked from your car to the parking lot this morning, your breath. 
And the, the translation of these words depends entirely on the context. Now, I want you to just pay attention to the P-N-E-U-M-A word, pneuma. Pneuma. In 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm reading the ESV. It says, all Scripture is breathed out. The actual word that Paul uses is theopneustos. Theopneustos. Theos, God. Pneuma, Spirit. Paul is like making a, a dad joke here with a theological bent. He's creating a compound word out of two words that usually don't go together to make this verb. And he's using the word God, theos, and pneuma, spirit. And he's turning it into verb form. And what he's saying is the scriptures are breathed out by God. They are spirited out by God. It's as if they proceed from the very mouth of God, which fits with what we talked about the Holy Spirit last week. The Holy Spirit is the one who eternally proceeds from the Father. And the Scriptures are a book that proceeds from the very mouth of God. It is breathed out by God. It is spirited out by God. Now, in verse 16, what did Paul mean when he said, all Scripture? All Scripture is breathed out or spirited out. What he meant when he wrote it was the Old Testament. Genesis up through Malachi. But can I just share with you a couple of verses? You can trace these out on your own. We won't dig too much today. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul quotes the Gospel of Luke, and he calls it Scripture. That's not an Old Testament book. That's a New Testament book. And Paul quotes Luke, what Luke wrote in the Gospel of Luke, the third Gospel, and he says that is Scripture. In fact, he quotes an Old Testament passage right alongside the Gospel of Luke, and he calls both of them Scripture. If you read, in another place, 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter talks about Paul's letters as being difficult to understand and twisted by many people like they do all of the other Scriptures. He takes all the Old Testament scriptures and he puts Paul's letters into that very same category. So when you and I look back, many, many years after Paul wrote this letter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we read that all scripture is breathed out by God, what we understand is that the Old Testament and the New Testament, the books of the Bible, are all inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. So that's truth number one this morning. Truth number two, the scriptures have dual authorship. They have a human author, and they also have a divine author. Dual authorship to the Scriptures. We're pulling this from 2 Peter chapter 1. If you have your Bible open there, you can just look at a few of these verses. We've already read it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Peter says, No Scripture came from someone's own interpretation. Not one time did a biblical author sit down and on their own, with their own interpretive powers, come up with something to write that we have in our Bibles. Look what he says in verse 21. No prophecy. And we know that he's not just talking about spoken prophecy. He's talking about written prophecy because he uses that verse, that same word, just up above. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Moses, 
David, Isaiah, John, Paul, Peter. It wasn't their own will that produced these books, these 66 books that make up our scriptures. It was actually, Peter says, the Holy Spirit carrying them along. So you say, well, the Holy Spirit must have done all of it for them. They were just sort of like robots. No, he says in verse 21, men spoke. Men spoke. They wrote. They wrote these prophecies down. They were their words. They thought about it. They studied it. They planned it. They structured it. There was a human author, but there was also a divine author as these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you one example of how you can see this in the Bible itself. Psalm 95. Psalm 95. If you look at it in the book of Psalms, it's just a psalm. It doesn't tell us who wrote it. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, that David wrote it. And then, one chapter later, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, the author of Hebrews says, the Holy Spirit wrote it. Which one is it? Yes. Both. A human author and a divine author. God is breathing these words out. How is he doing it? Well, he's carrying men along. You've got two different images to work with. God's breathing these words out. He's spiriting these words out. And he's using human authors. And he's just the Holy Spirit carrying them along as they write these words. So that the end result is a book written by a human being but inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, this next truth is going to make some of you uncomfortable. But this is what the Bible says. The scriptures, number three, are more reliable than miraculous experiences. The Bible, the written word of God, is a more reliable source of truth and direction in your life than experiencing a miracle. This is Peter's logic in what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1. Notice what he says first in verse 16. These are not cleverly devised myths. I don't know if you've studied the first century, the, uh, the last few centuries leading up to the birth of Jesus and the few centuries after that, but it was a world and a culture filled with clever myths. All sorts of people claiming to have figured it all out. And Peter says, look, this is not, this is not just another clever myth. We're not just making this stuff up. Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he was an eyewitness. He walked with Jesus, and he spoke to him face to face, and he touched him. Jesus pulled him out of the Sea of Galilee as he was sinking, grabbed him by the hand. He spent three years walking around with Jesus. He shared meals with Jesus. He was an eyewitness to these things. He talks about one instance in particular, verse 17 and 18. He says, we were on the mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. Not only did we spend three years walking around with this guy, but we were on the mountain of transfiguration when his glory was revealed to us. And we saw his resplendent, glorious, divine nature. And we heard God the Father on that mountain speak to us and say, this is my beloved Son, and I am pleased with him. We experienced the most amazing miracle you could ever imagine on the mountain of transfiguration. And he comes down into verse 19. It's a difficult verse to translate from Greek into English, but essentially what he's saying is, we now have 
the prophetic word, prophecies from God, the book written by men that were carried along by the Holy Spirit, we now have it and is more fully confirmed than any of those miracles that we've experienced. And I'll just be honest with you, I imagine for most of us, we doubt this. I imagine you've had it Moments in your life, experiences in your life, times in your life where you felt so unsure about your faith that what you thought was, I just need to see a miracle. I just need to hear an audible voice. If only I could walk through the Red Sea with Moses right now and see it and look at the walls of water on both sides, I think my faith would be a little bit stronger. If only. I could have been there at Jericho when they walked around that city day after day after day. And then on the seventh day, they blew the trumpets and the walls just fell down flat. If I could have seen that, well, man, I could really have strong faith. Maybe you read about the miracle of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And he called, literally, he calls down fire from heaven and it blows up the altar and it burns it all up. And you think, if only I could see something that Amazing. Or maybe your mind goes back to what Peter's describing and you say, if only I could have been there when Jesus fed the multitudes, when he walked on water, when he was transfigured. If only I could have seen him and experienced some miraculous thing, then my faith would be really strong. And Peter's logic is the exact opposite. And Peter's logic is, if only... All of those Old Testament saints could sit down with the full counsel of God's Word and read the prophetic Word which is more fully confirmed. Peter talks in his letters about the authors of Scripture and even the angels looking forward and longing to see the truth of Jesus, And they just looked forward and they just caught glimpses. They didn't see it all and they didn't have all the puzzle pieces put together. And Peter's saying, if you want to have strong faith, you don't need to experience a miracle. You don't need to hear an audible voice from heaven. You just need to open the word of God and read the scriptures. The scriptures that are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. One last truth. Back to 2 Timothy. The scriptures are sufficient for our salvation and our godliness. Look at what Paul says to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, I want you to continue what you learned. And you've believed these things. Firmly believed them. And you know from whom you learned it. He learned it from Paul. He learned it from his mother. He learned it from his grandmother. You know what you believe, Timothy. You know, verse 15... That from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's the scriptures. And that the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible is sufficient for salvation. Do you need a TV show to be saved? Do you need a Hollywood blockbuster? Based on the Bible to be saved? You need to experience a miracle in order to be saved? Well, yes, but usually not the kinds of miracles we think about. What is it that we need in order to be saved? The scriptures are able to make us wise 
for salvation. The scriptures speak plainly about God's holiness. That he alone is holy, 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 high and lifted up. And the earth is filled with his glory. The Bible speaks plainly about our sinfulness. That we have fallen short of God's glory. We've broken his law. We're guilty before our creator. The Bible speaks plainly that in the fullness of time, God sent his son to seek and to save the lost. To die on a cross for our sins. The good shepherd came and he laid down his life for the sheep. The Bible speaks plainly that the way we earn our salvation or the way we receive our salvation is not being a good person. It's not going to church on a cold morning. It's not giving lots of money. It's not doing all sorts of good works. But it's by repenting of our sin, turning from our sin, and putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks plainly about all of these things. I understand that when you study the scriptures, there's places where you're left scratching your head and you say, that's weird. I don't know how to understand that. What's that story about? What's that doing here? But these things that I'm talking to you about are the main things in scripture and they are abundantly clear. They are plain. God is holy, that we're sinners, that Jesus died to save us, and that the call on our life is to repent and believe. Scriptures are able. Timothy, you know the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation and equip you for godliness. What Paul says in verse 16 and 17, Scripture is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training. Why? So that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. There is nothing that God has for you to do in your life. No good work that the Bible will not equip you to do. It's sufficient for salvation, the knowledge that leads to salvation, and it's sufficient for equipping us in godliness. Why? Because right there in verse 16, it is all spirited out. It is breathed out by God. I mentioned earlier that our students are at winter retreat. They're studying the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. You may not know what those are, so here they are. Uh, Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, Grace alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And Soli Deo, Gloria to the glory of God alone. Five sessions, and they're just talking about these biblical themes. These biblical truths were at the heart of the Protestant Reformation, and they are at the heart of our salvation. Any person who has come to know Jesus Christ in a saving way has experienced the power of these five truths in their life, even if they don't fully and completely understand them. So we're teaching the kids. We want you to understand how salvation works in your life. In a very real sense, the most fundamental of all of those five, while they're all important, but the most fundamental in leading to the Reformation and in our experience today is the first one, sola scriptura, scripture alone. That means ultimately the buck stops with the Bible. Here's a definition that we might work off of. The Bible alone is the final infallible authority for doctrine and practice. It is a determining norm over all human opinions, yours, mine, councils, creeds, all of them. The Bible is over all of us and traditions. Scripture is God's word. It is a sufficient and final authority for the church. You go in my office, I have lots of books. You can go to a Christian bookstore, you can buy all kinds of books. But at the end of the day, 
We don't need books. We need the Word of God. Now, books are good, and you should be a reading, thinking person. But ultimately, what we need is not another bestseller, but it's the Bible. There's not anything wrong with technology. We are using technology even this morning as we sit in this room and as we make a live stream. But ultimately, technology is not what you need to be saved or to be godly. You need the Word of God. I talk to people all the time, and what they want most desperately is for God to speak directly to them in some audible, tangible way. And they're often disappointed when I say, He has done that. He's done it. He has spoken. The Holy Spirit has inspired a book written by men, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. It is God's living and active Word. We're dependent on God's Word as the people of God. We need the Word of God. So, one last question. How do we respond to these ideas? Thinking about the Holy Spirit and His work and inspiring the Scriptures, what should we do? Number one, I think we should ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate what He inspired. I think rather than saying, Holy Spirit, would you tell me something personal and secret? We should say, Holy Spirit, will you help me to understand what you've already said? I'll be honest with you, Jake and I did some work, Jake and Jake and myself, looking for songs that we might sing in this series as we talk about the Holy Spirit. The vast majority of them have an emphasis on the Holy Spirit speaking directly, individually, personally, mystically, magically to us as individuals, rather than saying, would you just help me understand what you've already said? Asking the Spirit to illuminate what He has inspired. If you were with us when we went through Psalm 119, maybe you remember verses like verse 12, Psalm 119 verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. The psalmist over and over and over again asks God to teach him, to help him, to help him understand. Uh, this is the hope that Paul held out to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Church in Corinth was all over the map, confused about the Holy Spirit. And Paul's trying to set things back straight. And one of the things he says is, the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we could understand the things that he has given us. In inspiring these 66 books... It's now the work of the Holy Spirit to help us understand these things. Sometimes on Wednesday nights, we sing a great old hymn by George Atkins. It's, brethren, we have met to worship. This is what he says in verse 1. Brethren, we've met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the word? All is vain unless the Holy Spirit comes down. The Spirit of the Holy One. Brethren, pray in holy manna will be showered all around. I can teach a lesson. I can explain a verse. I can give you Greek words. I can break it down into points. Only the Holy Spirit of God can help you understand the Word of God. Thanks be to God that He uses the preaching of fallible, fallen, broken people, preachers and Sunday school teachers. 
but ultimately it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's all vain. I don't have the power to change your life in your heart. I don't have the power to open your eyes to the truth of God's Word. Only the Holy Spirit can do that in a person's life. So we ought to ask the Holy Spirit to do what only He can do. Number two, we should work to understand the Scriptures and we should joyfully submit to the Scriptures. And I intend this to balance truth one. Because maybe you think, well, the Holy Spirit inspired these things. We're going to ask Him to illuminate these things. And then we're just going to sit back and wait for Him to download these ideas into our heads. No, that's not how it works. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. But the means that He uses is the people of God understanding and working to rightly divide the Word of God, the Scriptures. Just a few examples of this. You can trace these out. First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes a letter to his friends in Thessalonica, and he says, I want to commend you for something. When we came and when we preached, when we preached God's Word to you, you received it not as the Word of men, but as the Word of God, which it is. You were eager to receive it. And then there's a verse in the book of Acts where Luke is talking about the very same mission trip, and he says something interesting. Luke says that after Paul left Thessalonica, where they received the word as the word of God, he went to Berea, and he says the people in Berea were more noble. They were better than even the people in Thessalonica. Do you know why? Because not only did they receive the word of God as God's word, but they examined the scriptures daily to see whether or not what Paul said lined up with the Bible. That's what we want to happen here. When you and I gather together for worship in this room, of course we're praying that the Holy Spirit would do what only the Holy Spirit can do in our lives. But we're also working to rightly understand God's Word, and we're receiving it as the Word of God, and we're examining it beyond this room, to make sure that the guy standing up in the front actually said something that lines up with the Bible. We're not just taking his word for granted. Praying that the Spirit would illuminate his word. Working to understand the Scriptures. Joyfully submitting to the Scriptures. Listen, very quickly. When you open the Bible and you read something that bumps up with what you believe. And you say, I don't know about that. That's not what I've always heard. Where'd that verse come from? When you read the Bible and you read something that bumps up with your life and you feel like this book is stepping on your toes, we don't change this book. We change our thinking. We change our living. This book is our authority. This book is God's word inspired by the Holy Spirit, it ought to shape us. We ought not try to shape it. One last truth. We should fix our eyes on Jesus, the central character of the Scriptures. So last week, we looked at John 15, and one of the things I told you out of John 15 is that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth who bears witness to Jesus. And we're going to come back to that idea before we're done in this series. The Holy Spirit bears witness to the truth about Jesus. Many times, as believers, we think, oh, that probably started at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, so when He showed up at Pentecost, and then in through the book of Acts, and in through church history, the Holy Spirit is pointing people 
to Jesus. That did happen at Pentecost, and it has happened throughout church history. But I got news for you. The Holy Spirit didn't come into existence at Pentecost. He eternally proceeds from the Father. And from ages past, He has been inspiring, authoring, if you will, a book. One book. 1,500 years. 40-some different authors. Three different languages. One story that centers on one person, Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that when Jesus preached his very first sermon in Nazareth, he opened up the scriptures to the book of Isaiah. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. And this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus thought the book of Isaiah was about him. Is it any wonder in Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. The Holy Spirit inspired those books. Why would Jesus come to abolish them? He didn't come to abolish them. He came to what? Fulfill them. They're all about him. Is it any wonder that after Jesus was crucified and buried and raised from the dead, when he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he walked them through the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And he showed them all of the things concerning himself. And he said to them, why are you slow to believe all that was written in the law and the prophets? It all had to be fulfilled by the Messiah. Look, people in churches all over Odessa, all over the United States this morning, are gathering and they were wanting to listen to the Holy Spirit. And in their minds, what they think that means is if they can get still enough and quiet enough, maybe the Spirit will just speak directly to them. Neglecting the fact that the Spirit has spoken. He has inspired a book. And the Spirit of God is now given to the people of God to freely help us understand what He has given to us. To help us see the truth about Jesus. Not the truth about ourselves first. Not even the truth about the Holy Spirit first. But to help us see the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's pray and ask the Spirit to do what only the Spirit can do. Father, we stop this morning and we marvel at the miracle that you have worked through your Spirit in inspiring the Scriptures. God, we're thankful for a book that is sure and steady, is a rock under our feet, it's unchanging, it's trustworthy, it's reliable, it's your very word, it is living and it is active, it is powerful, than a, uh, more sharper than a two-edged sword, uh, and it divides us, it exposes us, it points us to the truth about Jesus. Father, as we gather together week after week after week in this room, and as we open this book, and as we read the words inspired by your Spirit, we humbly pray that you would send your Spirit to open our eyes to the truth, that your Spirit would illumine and help us understand what your Spirit has said to us in the Scriptures. God, forgive us when we're lazy and we just want you to speak directly to us and we're unwilling to open this book and to listen to what you've already said. Father, we pray uh, that we would be people who focus on Jesus as we read the scriptures, that 
your spirit would bear witness to the truth about your son and the good news of salvation that you've provided through him. Lord, we have hope because Jesus has died for us. We have hope because your spirit has brought us from death to life. We have hope of eternity. And we just want to take a moment before we leave to sing about the hope of eternity with you, the hope of heaven. So, Lord, be honored as we lift our voices in worship. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.